Well, hello and thank you for coming. Um, I mean, when you have an actual live audience as opposed to talking to a screen or through video chatting or all that, it's kind of nice to know that they're breathing and living. And, and <laughs> Although some of you might be in a state of stupor after too many cookies for the break, I don't know. All right. Let me talk a little bit about, I'm going to move on to my, my first slide so you can have a look at it, and just tell you a little bit about the title. Um, a couple of years back, there's a book that came out at the early days of black, women, of black, black feminism on black women's <laughs> studies. And the title was something like, all the men are black, all the women are white, but some of us are brave, or some combination of that. And it basically was saying that those black women who, stood, who stepped outside of either black politics or white feminist politics were brave in doing so. I went to a conference a couple years back because the book was reissued. And instead of being called, but some of us were brave, it had the title, <coughs> still brave. So I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to go and see exactly what's happened within black women's studies over the last 20, 25 years. We'll kind of see where it's going. And as I sat in this conference, what instead I was experiencing was a celebratory conference of nostalgia. And I thought, this is really very interesting. But many of the people at the conference did not want to talk about today. They wanted to talk about the founding moment when they imagined themselves to be amazingly brave, which they were, a lot of them. And then they wanted to layer it onto contemporary reality and to say to many of the people in the room, sit at my feet, study from us about how brave we were. Now that was the impetus of the, the original title, which is Still Brave, Black Feminism as a Social Justice Project. Now, I, I pulled together some ideas for this talk a couple of years ago, and I thought, I wonder if we are still brave yet again. So I wanted to revisit, as part of that continual process of self-reflexivity about our own work, where are we at a given point in time? Now, those of you who were um, unfortunate enough to come to last night's talk and suffer through that, and you're here again, Yesterday, what I talked about was looking into the past to think about lessons from the past that might address particular challenges of the present. Today, what I want to do with this whole title of revisiting black feminism as a social justice project is to really have a much more hard-hitting analysis that asks the question, are we really still brave? What is US black feminism now? And I'm asking the question from the now to look into the future. So there's a connection between yesterday and today. I'm going for a linear timeline of between the two talks and also in looking at the field. Now, are you sympathetic to me in terms of how my poor life is usually? That the expression of overthinking everything. <laughs> so now I've given you the backstage of the title, all right? Now we can move on to the actual talk. <laughs> The talk is in two parts. I'll have one or two comments before I start part one. But in part one, I really want to talk about staying brave. I mean, do we have to stay brave? Challenges facing US black feminism. I'll be talking about three specific challenges. I'm sure there are many more. I'm sure there are others I could be addressing. But there are three that I find particularly problematic. Right? And that's what I want to focus on. The second part of the talk is still brave. We're going to still be brave in addressing the challenges. And this is more proscriptive. So the first part of the talk could be, in, could be looked at as a diagnostic component. 
And the second part could be a constructive component. Diagnosing, deconstruct and then construct. Not just half a theory, all of a theory in moving forward. For those of you who are familiar with that. All right, so just a word or two, because even though I'm at a women's studies conference, I don't assume you all are brilliant and know everything. You may assume that, but I don't assume that. <laughs> this is why I brought the first slide with me. Just to give you a sense of the framework that permeates the work and certainly that permeates my work. In my work, you will find a model of black feminism that is not just about the individual. It is not just about the person, the individual black woman and getting all that heterogeneity. It is a profoundly structural model. It basically says, when you talk about US black feminism, you must pay attention to social structures like institutions, organizations, and communities in which individuals are situated that they aim to shape and that shape them. And using this particular framework, I have three bullets here just to give you a sense of the complexity so that we don't leave out any parts. The first theme that has been quite central to US black feminism has been experiences, the experiences of US black women, not as data, but as experienced by women themselves and listening to people for the heterogeneity of what they are actually saying. From those experiences, one gets a listing of social issues that have emerged within the lived experiences with different forms of racial and gender oppression. I need to remind the audience here that the United States is profoundly segregated. It still is segregated. I don't care if Barack Obama is standing up there saying we are the world, come to the White House and roll eggs on the lawn and all of that. If you really look at neighborhoods, you will find patterns of race and class segregation that are quite significant, you see. And that really shapes how people view common issues. So I, as an individual, can grow up in Philadelphia and say the schools are one way, but if I grew up in the suburbs 20 miles away, I would have a very different perspective on education, probably, because I would have had different experiences with those structures. So this whole first part is to valorize experience, to get people to trust what they think they already know. Not to trust it to the point where you don't think about other points of view, but to trust experience as being a valid source of data for doing theorizing. The second category has analyses, black women self-defined analyses of those experiences and social issues. I believe in the integrity of a black women's standpoint, a black women's knowledge. That does not mean everybody has the same uniform point of view. In fact, if we lined up all African-American women and asked them their perspectives, on a variety of things, we would get such heterogeneity. It is far from being an essentialist position. But what happens when you're working in a tradition or you're working in a country that, that denies you your right to know, there's this term called epistemic oppression that basically says some people can know things better than others and the rest just have to shut up because they don't have any original ideas to be, to be had anywhere. This whole notion of analyses and thinking of African-American women as fully human subjects with analyses on the world that are valid and, and um, important is an important component here. Because there's so many groups that spend time wanting to tell black women, ooh, we thought of it first. Oh, there's feminism, then there's black feminism. You see, that kind of thing. We are the, there are soldiers 
And they're women soldiers. I mean, there's that kind of a framework that you're always pushing back against. And the third category would be actions. I put this in here because I want to remind all of us that this is not just an academic discourse. It never has been. And if it turns out that it no longer remains an academic discourse, that may be okay. In fact, in some ways, the academy may be killing black feminism. And that's really what I want to talk about a little bit today in terms of the politics there. So anyhow, if you look at these three bullets, there's a recursive relationship among the three. Actions, of course, are going to shape the kinds of experiences you have, which may shape uh, your worldview, which may put you in contact with certain people and not with other people, which is going to shape your experiences, all of that. This is the wolf and wharf and the, and the texture of community. And this is also the texture of politics and of intellectual work. So that I just did, I believe, in one minute. That is the shortest introduction to U.S. black feminism you're going to get ever. <laughs> you need to be incredibly uh, impressed by that. And here's the example that I'm going to follow it up with. If you know this particular individual, Ida Wells Barnett, and you look at the, her work, you can run her work through this particular metric to see the experiences that she was dealing with. Her parents were slaves. So she was one generation away from slavery, and she understood what it meant to free yourself from, those, from that situation. But she was also a witness to lynchings in Memphis, Tennessee. She was not lynched herself, obviously. But some of us become the most um, important drum majors for justice, to use King's words, if we witness an injustice, particularly if it occurs to someone that we care about. That's something you carry with you through your life. That's what happened with Ida Wells Barnett. She began to write about what she was seeing in the South. Uh, her analyses, she was a journalist. She is now claimed by the sociologists because they're looking for all these people they wouldn't let become sociologists before and they want to make themselves look better, all right? So she's now a sociologist. <laughs> you see, but she really was a journalist. And what she did was come up with initial analyses about race, class, gender, and sexuality concerning African-Americans and violence. And she put forth some very provocative comments about sexuality, about the rape of black women, about the lynching of black men, uh, and, and about interracial sexuality in general during that period of time. These ideas were very provocative. They ran her out of Memphis. They said, if you ever come back, we will kill you. So she moved to Chicago and continued this work. But her actions, not just to produce knowledge, but her actions, to create space is, are really, to me, the penultimate brave black woman. Because Ida Wells Barnett was thrown out of a women's suffrage parade in Washington, DC. The white women said to her, don't come. It makes it worse for us, our feminism, if you come. So when we get our feminism, we'll help you then. And Ida Wells Barnett refused. She actually crashed the parade. And of course, everybody knew she was there because she stood out, all right? <laughs> so there she was. But she also was angered because the founding, the founding of the NAACP, the National Association for Colored Folk, wherever it's all now, colored people, um, William E. B. Boyce's organization that you all probably say, wow, he was such an open figure, did not include her. You see, she thought she had an invitation to be one of the founding members because it was going to be men only or certain kinds of people only. She crashed that too. So Ida Wells Barnett really experiencing uh, social class mobility from uh, poverty to an established life in Chicago, uh, seeing sexuality as a very important issue that was implicated in the racial and class politics of her time and gender politics of her time, put forth what we would call an intersectional analysis quite early. Right? We don't have to go make one up. 
We can go back and look for all the places within US black feminism where you find this type of work. So I put her here because I want to give you an example of an individual who's working in a particular social structural context, who identifies that context, who's doing analysis, but who's also taking action based on the experiences that she's had. That's a model that I think um, is kind of underpins this whole work. All right, now we're going to start to talk. <laughs> here are the three things that I would like to talk about. Challenges to contemporary black feminism. And all of these have occurred while I was writing black feminist thought in the late 80s. And since I've had to think about how it's traveled in the 90s and the early 2000s, what has happened during the period of time when I wrote the book? Because in some ways I was looking backwards, but now I've got to think about what's happened in those last 25 years. I think one thing that's quite significant that is really pointing to these three items that I will, that I'm going to talk about in greater detail, is a, a reconfigured society. It's really important that we have to pay attention to the fact, away from structural analyses of everything, and toward individualized, fragmentary, decentralized analyses of everything. Difference is a good thing, but difference can blind you to commonalities. You see, sometimes it's hard to see solidarities and common, commonalities if we're spending so much time thinking about the differences. And, but that I can live with. The issue for me is much more how this focus away from the structure, from the structural, has challenged the collective. The notion of the group, the notion of the community, the notion of collective action. We're getting it back now. That's why I'm actually pretty encouraged these days. But there was a period of time where I would argue the logic of neoliberalism quite wisely figured out that if you disappear the group as a polluted way of organizing your life, you have disappeared the politics that come from that group. So if I can disappear the group of US black women in terms of solidarity and put in its place the heterogeneity of lots of individual black women, we're all finding their way, then it makes it much more difficult to see what needs to be done if you're actually the black woman. And it also makes it much easier for us to discipline you because you don't see yourself as part of something bigger. Um, Jack, when you were talking a little earlier about the academy, I think the academy is an excellent example of this. And this is a wonderful place where we could apply Foucault's notion of disciplinary power, where we are disciplined. We discipline students. We infantilize students. When you infantilize students and you treat them like they're children, and what you're trying to do is adopt them and bring them up and fill them up with wisdom and treat them as secondary, we all become parsed out as individuals in ways that makes it difficult to see our collective issues. I was once in a faculty union. Now, doesn't that sound like a contradiction in terms? Particularly here. Faculty, union. Ooh. Does that go together? <laughs> Faculty members are workers. Workers. Workers' rights. If you get a check, you're a worker. Right? So just to begin to think about life that way. So anyhow, these times are quite interesting. Those, those are the broader, just really big paintbrush, the, you know, the period that we're in. The three things I want to talk about are the disconnect between black feminism and the everyday realities of African American women's lives. I often feel that US black feminism, particularly in the academy, not outside the academy necessarily, and I think this is changing, 
but there was a period where they just moved in different directions. This was happening, all these things were happening to everyday black women, right? They launch a million black women's march. I mean, there's all this stuff that's happening. But in the academy, something different is going on, you see, because our black feminism moved into the academy and somehow had trouble getting out, all right? It got captured somehow. Still there? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do realize I expect an answer when I say that. <laughs> not a rhetorical device. I'm going to look at you guys. All right. Second, U.S. black feminism, I would call this the cost of legitimation. When something becomes legitimate, it has to make itself respectable. It came in looking one way. And the answer is these five figures, these rap figures that, that were, uh, we were shown earlier, well, they're just too raggedy and they're just too outside. They have to clean up. Let's put them in some Sunday church stuff. And once then, then they can come into the church, all right? So there's a certain element of incorporating unruly discourse in what are considered rule-bound spaces that changes the nature of what you're saying and doing, changes the experience, changes the um, analysis, and changes the action, right? The third thing would be reorganizing black feminist praxis. This is a challenge. And I think we're meeting the challenge. I'm still liking my own. I might need to move my challenges into the next section because I think we're meeting some of these actually uh, pretty well now. But anyhow, let me move on because I know I, it's not all about me. It's not the Dr. Hill Collins show and other people want to talk, so let me move on. All right. But anyhow, um, here's my question. Is black feminism relevant to African American women? I'd actually ask the question about feminism in general. Ooh, heresy. Is feminism relevant? Because usually the answer from feminists is, oh, they're just so uninformed. They don't know they need feminism. You know, ooh, you know, there's a lot of victim blaming of women who basically don't claim the feminist canon. There's something wrong with them, as opposed to asking, how might we talk about contemporary feminism such that contemporary women can see the places where it overlaps and speaks to their lives and how they might speak to it. A very different kind of question. It involves a self-reflexivity on our truths that we often carry forth uncritically ourselves. All that politics is nostalgia. So I would ask the same question with US black feminism, and I think it's a little easier to see because it's a, it's a smaller group. It's a historically contextualized group. It's more tightly bounded. So I think what we've got are two things that are in tension. The success of black feminist thought in the academy, including my own, and African-American women's everyday lives, the social issues and social injustices that are there. It's on the one hand, the classroom that has Toni Morrison's beloved in it, and everyone says, oh, we love black women's literature. It's so interesting, <laughs> up to a point where it gets replaced by the next group of others who show up with their literature, and that gets replaced by the next group of others. It's the symbolic inclusion of the ideas. And when the ideas come without the people, without the experiences, without the actions, when they become theoretical ideas that can just travel free or floating, they can be changed. So that's one thing. But on the other hand, you've got African-American women's everyday lives. And this is the closing door of opportunity all over the place. This is the logic of neoliberalism and what it is doing to African-American communities and to black women's lives within those particular communities. I'm trying not to scare you. I'm not scaring you, am I? 
<laughs> you look pretty, like pretty hardy. Yeah, you are. Right. <laughs> Check that out there. All right. I will also try and be on my best behavior, which is to be on time. Professorial. <laughs> no, not all that. <laughs> what I think we see now among the everyday realities of African American women's lives, work is crucial. Anti-discrimination, equity in jobs and pay, which I think is now emerging under this lovely banner of workers' rights. That's where black women have always been, because black women have worked. Worked under slavery for no money, worked in domestic work for not enough money, worked at fast food for definitely not enough money, part-time work, all of that. Labor needs to do a better job. U.S. black feminism needs to really be talking a lot more about workers' issues than it does, all right? Family. Now, for a while, some of us really went off down, down a very, very strange path. And it was the path that said, families are suspects. Well, we know families are the site of so much bad stuff that happens. However, for people who are mothers and who have children and they care about their children, this is my talk last night, mass incarceration has had a profound effect on African-American families. The locking up of black men, the policing of black men, and these are heterosexual families. You know, but that's kind of what a lot of black women are going to say, this is what I'm dealing with. Locking up with black women themselves in terms of mass incarceration and the growth of race there. I think you could pretty much say with great confidence that most US black women are very interested in the state of their families, their extended families, their children, their brothers, their sisters, etc. That connectedness is something that is there. Education, the erosion of opportunities for upward social mobility, and I'll come back to that a little later, and health. Access to services, the defunding and the closing. Basically, this is the defunding and the closing of everything public but the prisons. Right? It's the shift of money from these institutions that social movements fought quite hard to other institutions and to other groups who are benefiting from public money. Can I say it any clearer than that? Can I move on to the next slide? Okay, there you go. You heads up and down. I'm feeling better. All right. Now, if I had to look at what some of the thematic emphases of US black feminism in the academy have been, we have a tremendous amount of attention to representations, literary and popular culture. This is not a bad thing. What I'm, this list that I'm giving you, it's not that this is a bad list. It's more a question of what is overemphasized and what is missing or what is underemphasized. And we have to ask ourselves, how does this stuff go from one step? How, how does this work? How would this particular list of representations, identities. We have a tremendous amount of time. We have a lot of vested interest in the whole notion of identities. And a lot of those identities are individual <coughs> identities. I think actually it's pretty much mandated by colleges. I was thinking when Jack was talking about the diversity initiatives that basically handhold everybody. It says, oh, you're different, oh, you're different too, or you're different too, let's celebrate your Iranian, whatever heritage, whatever, you know, everything, <laughs> you name it, you know, kind of thing which can, in a lot of ways, make people incredibly narcissistic and also facilitate this consumerist mentality that we as teachers see in the classroom. I am shopping for the right experience for me. The trigger stuff is really interesting to me. If somebody came in my class with this trigger stuff, I think I would get fired or something. I still have tenure. <laughs> you do realize that 75% of college faculty members are no longer tenured. Tenure in the US is really eroding. So we're dinosaurs. 
to be able to say what we say the way we say it. All right, I like that part there. Hard <laughs> work for me, yeah. What good is tenure if you don't use it? I tell people I wrote Black Feminist Thought right after I got tenure. The first thing I did. <laughs> so I really believe in that, you know. Doesn't have to be perfect, but you just make do the best of what you have. So the identities of college students, the meaning of blackness. If I hear, come on now, I know this is a big issue in the UK. Everybody's like concerned about the meaning of blackness. In the US, you don't see a lot of black people running around saying, I'm wondering about the meaning of my blackness. You know, it's more like, police, ah, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of a different discourse that comes from. Not that that isn't important. I want to be really clear. I'm not saying these are unimportant issues, but I'm saying that the issues that drive, that have really folded themselves into US black feminism in some ways are issues that are safe for the academy. They're the issues that made black feminism acceptable. So theory, I do theory, I love theory, but I also know that it's so much easier to come to. It's easier to fight in the terrain of theory because it's never tested in the crucible of practice, you see. So when you actually have to do something, the theory feels different. When you have to put it on and wear it someplace, all right? So that's pretty much what I do from place to place, wearing these ideas. But theory is a wonderful place to go, we need that. But do we need more than this? So if I had to look at these two lists and, and you know, compare them, they don't necessarily match up. The issue is to bring them into closer alignment, not to eliminate one or elevate one over the other, but a more robust analysis. That's a challenge. We need that. Historically, it was much more tightly, tightly wedded because the social conditions were different. Let me move on to the second one. The cost of legitimation. Just to say a little bit about this, I see shrinking horizons of black feminism in the academy. I think we're actually at the cusp of a disappeared black feminism that disappears into other discourses. Um, it's almost as if the particularities of black women's experiences are only important as long as they're useful for something else. You know, then they're too particular. So now we've got theories that we don't necessarily need black women in. The work that I do is in the area of intersectionality. And intersectionality is a theory that technically has it supplanted US black feminism? Because there's certain things that when you move away from US black feminism, as I have described it, you can do what you couldn't do before. So the question is, what do you have to leave at the door for the price of legitimation, right? The price of the ticket to get in, what do you have to leave? Well, one thing you have to leave is your experiential knowledge, unless you are willing to put your experiential knowledge at service of other paradigms, all right? So I want to be an anthropologist. I have experiential knowledge for your anthropology paradigm, or for less than But to actually say we're going to have a paradigmatic view of the world that's grounded in black women's experiential knowledge, well, that's too particular. Where are the white women in your study? Where are the black men in your study? Where's everybody else in your study except just you? Obviously, you can't be important enough for us to come to some kind of universal understanding. All right, I'm getting too much into my material. <sighs> but you can see how this really, you can see I'm a little, it's 25 years of pent up being pissed off. <laughs> you know, and I'm not pissed off at any of you. I'm just sort of, I just met you. Now, after I know you a little better. Okay, no, 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 all right. What gets left at the door? Self-definitions of experiences by black women. The shared wisdom and analysis, it's okay to disappear all of that. There's a reinstallation of hegemony, all right? And it can be wearing the clothes of saying race and class and gender and all those things. So you think it's the same thing, but it's really not. 
analyses of experiences and or self-definitions by black women and others disappear. We have one thing that survives, intersectionality, and surviving and thriving. But of course the question is what kind? And the freedom struggles, which I did not mention, but I think freedom struggles have been central. I mentioned this last night. Political. In the academy, it's rational. We don't want political. We don't want ethical. All right? Check that at the door. Those are very nice conversations to have over beer. When you leave, you can talk about the implications, the applications, whatever. And by the way, I think it's actually quite naive to think that you can actually have an activist space in an institution you know, that is basically paying the bills. So in some ways, the pedagogical problems that many of us have or the research problems that we have, that's the cost of doing business where we're doing business. I mean, I would just look at it that way and just sort of move on. So anyhow, from this, what are the winners and losers? One thing that I think has been a winner or a loser, I'll just talk about the losers. I think feminist, well, I think feminist theory has been a winner, right? If you can take the particulars of black women out, you can then make certain claims about intersectionality as a feminist theory, which it's not. Or a feminist framework, which it's not. Or it came out of feminism, which it didn't. You know, you can start making certain stories up. Kimberly Crenshaw found intersectionality and she coined it. Don't look for that term. She coined it in the 1990s until we decided we didn't need it anymore. You eviscerate the identity politics that have been central to U.S. black feminism. Because you get rid of them, therefore, because you disappear the group. And then you say, oh, the groups are so essentialist. How do you know you're not discriminating against the black women when you talk about those things about Faithful Collins? Now, this is for people who don't even know any black women. All right? This is a fascinating, these are the fascinating conversations I've had to endure. So I think the whole notion of black feminist praxis, which has, is cl quite clear if you read the documents, if you really are well grounded in US black feminism, the Kambahi River Collective Statement, I believe I gave a little bit about that last night. Um, the reinstallation of the theory practice binary, particularly within what are considered to be dissonant traditions, and feminism has to ask itself, <coughs> are we doing that with our theory? You know, who's it for? Who can understand it? Whose life is it talking to? Why? Are we too narrow? I mean, it's really the notion of being self-reflexive. Now, let me move on to the third challenge. Here are some of the new realities. I'm just going to leave them up there for a minute in the interest of time. Obviously, I could spend a lot of time on those, but just to mention, it's building from the ground up. It's starting from this particular historical moment and saying, what are some of the major challenges now that perhaps weren't there before that we've got to be creative about analyzing and also coming up with action in response to them? The defunding of US public institutions, I think I've mentioned to you, but I will tell you one little story as to why I'm all riled up. I went to a wonderful school called the Philadelphia High School for Girls. I don't know, it was called, it was cool, all right. <laughs> public institution, funded with public money. We had an orchestra, we had a band, we had a choir, we had science labs, we had a gym. The school was funded because the public said, we believe in public education for all kids. There was discrimination in there, but no, it, wasn't, it wasn't utopia. I just went back from my high school reunion. Oh, you know, I'm getting kind of old. 50th high school reunion. So we all come in. <laughs> but actually, that is not what happened. I ended up in a room full of people. We all looked at each other and said, damn, girl, you look good. It was really wonderful. <laughs> 
to produce this group of amazing women who were doing fascinating things. But as we sat in the school library that we physically had sat in 50 years earlier, and we looked around and we realized, wow, there was no money for a librarian. There was no orchestra. There was no band. There was no, there was a whole list of what the school didn't have. The kids in the school now are predominantly, if not overwhelmingly, black and Puerto Rican and Latino. It's the Philadelphia Public Schools, if you pay attention to those schools. That has been very much defunded with public money going into private enterprise, leaving these kids marooned. And these are the very same kids, the very same girls. If you care about girls, you don't have to care about the education girls. All right? These are the very same girls who now no longer can get to the institutions that were available to us because they don't have the services that we had. Now, it was really a very telling experience. If I live in the abstract, I can just imagine things you need to do. But if I'm living in the tangible here and now, where I'm forced to go back and look at what it means to have doors closed, that leads to a very different kind of US black feminism. All right? So that's just one. OK, that's my little school example. Quickly through the others. We've got reconfigured race and social class. We can talk about Barack Obama if you want. We can talk about urban poverty, all those kinds of things. African-American politics, I don't know. I do want to spend a minute or two on the media environment, because I think the media is increasingly significant, particularly for youth. Mass media and social media as sites for black women's activism. So let me say a little bit about mass media. You ready? Yeah. Oh, what did I put up there? On the same slide, <laughs> you see a graphic of Michelle Obama, and you see a graphic of I didn't know that Nicki Minaj had made it to Oxford. And if, if she had made it to Oxford, if you all would claim that you knew, you know, I mean, it could be. I don't know who that is. <laughs> I'm doing some of that stuff up in here. All right. Anyhow, both of these women are visible and they exercise power. They both encourage us to rethink our understanding of power and what it means to be powerful, both individually and have an effect on a culture. Now, when I look at the old discourse of Michelle Obama and Nicki Minaj would have said, Michelle Obama is respectability. She's the black lady. That's what I find in my own book, by the way. She's the black lady. And over here, we have the discourse of authenticity, which is considered the stereotypical authentic black woman as this society wants you to be seen. She's the one who's the hoe. So we would have Michelle, you know what that is, right? Yes, all right. So we have um, Michelle Obama as the respectable black lady, and we have Nicki Minaj as the hoe. And that one is elevated and the other is not, and one serves as the discourse of who we should copy, and the other one not. But I think what's interesting about both of these women is neither one of them fits the script. All right? The script doesn't work the way it needs to work. So I'm, listen, I'm looking at um, a, a, a clip from The Ellen Show, and all of a sudden, here's Michelle Obama out in the middle with white pants on, I believe, with a bunch of dancers behind her. I'm thinking, is that Michelle Obama? <laughs> Dancing to up down, no, Uptown, Bump You Up. You know, I mean, the Bruno Mars one, Uptown, Bump You Up, Uptown, Bump You Up. Oh, <laughs> and 
know, if you think I'm going to twerk like Nikki Minaj. <laughs> Not happening, all right? But basically what Michelle Obama has done is she's taken a category. This is actually working within the categories that she's given. I love the whole idea of creating a home in the future, but sometimes you can't do that. You've got to work with the categories that you're in. Because she's in a position of power, but she's clearly circumscribed before they even got elected. So she's redefined this whole notion of mom in chief, which is really very interesting, around food and feeding children, planting a garden. It's all within the purview of the dignified first lady, but basically she's been raising a lot of questions about food. Those of you who are into the politics of food, they're quite different than six years ago. She's taken on corporations about too much sugar. She's taken on a variety, but all as mom and she, and she's even wearing pearls in this particular picture. So this is a particularly good graphic. Her Let's Move campaign, all right? What I saw actually was an ad for her Let's Move campaign for health and nutrition. So on the White House lawn this year, they got out there and did Bruno Mars, Uptown Funk. Oh, everybody had to learn to dance. This was an amazing thing. If you ever listen to the lyrics of this song, well, there are a few lyrics in there. I'm surprised they got away with it. But then nobody listens to it. <laughs> now, it's the using the visibility, knowing that you are going to be attacked continually, unrelentingly, because you are, do not look like what a first lady should look like in a White House. All right? Oh, excuse me. The White House. All right? And then we have Nicki Minaj over here. Now, the song that I'm really fascinated by for Nicki, Nicki Minaj is the song Anaconda. Have any of you seen the video Anaconda? You need to go see this video. I watched it again this morning because it was just such an amazing thing to watch. And about, my students introduced me to Nicki Minaj. They said, that's because even Nicki Minaj said no. He said, mm -hmm. And they commandeered the smart cart and they got on the web, and next thing I knew, there was Nikki shaking stuff. We had to close the door so I would not be talked about by my colleagues as not doing something academic. But basically, this particular song is a very interesting song about reclaiming black women's sexuality and saying, I'm working within the categories that you've given me to work within. And when you see this, if you look at it through the politics of respectability, it seems horrible. But if you look at it in terms of what she's actually saying at the same time, in terms of the image, well, is Nicki Minaj a hoe in that particular one? Or is it something different? So we may need a new language that actually addresses the media and the impact of the media. More on that a little later. All right, lots more I could say about that, but I'm going to move on. I thought we would just sort of get your attention just in case you were dozing off there. There's a challenge. All right. Addressing the challenges, I want to work through this quite quickly so we have time for discussion. I have quite a bit to say, but I'm going to try not to say all of it. Three things, just to put them on the table. First, there is the need for intergenerational initiatives with and or for African American youth. And this is the question, where would youth find U.S. black feminism? A lot of them are sitting around saying, Beyonce's a feminist? Well, yeah, maybe. What does that mean? Or Nicki Minaj is a feminist? Well, what does that mean? Maybe, you know, kind of thing. So to really ask the question about how does one actually construct that mindfully. Because in the past, the intergenerational connections occurred within the context of segregation. Now they have to be manufactured and built and constructed differently. All right? The second, building organizational venues for black feminist practice. Not relying overly on the academy or some other spot. Where would be the places where black feminism happens 
the multiple locations, one of which would be the economy, but not that would not be the only place or the sole place. And three, developing stronger coalitions with similar global social justice projects. Very, very important for U.S. black feminism to situate itself in the global context because then you see connections that um, are harder to see if you're only looking through the frame of America and particularly America's racial history. All right, so that's, that obscures you, obscures certain things. So the first one, creating intergenerational initiatives. It's not like people haven't been out there working from one generation to the next. I would call your attention to Angela Davis. On the right, we've got her 1981 book, Women, Race, and Class. On the left, we have a recent book, I believe it's 2014, maybe 2013, The Meaning of Freedom and Other Difficult Dialogues. Angela Davis has been out there consistently over time, developing ideas, speaking out against prisons. Her work is quite central in terms of intersectionality. She's often not mentioned. You see, when you disappear the black women, you disappear people like, like Angela Davis. But, the, but as wonderful as her work is, and I can find other examples like this, the question I would raise is where would people find Angela Davis? If I went to my old public high school and I said, well, listen, I want to take a class on black women. Are we reading Angela Davis this semester? The answer might be read. We don't have books. Remember the library's closed, all right? Or, okay, so maybe if I know the books of Angela Davis, I can look on the web, I can do other things. But if I'm living in Philadelphia, I'll go to the public library. Have you been in a public library lately? <coughs> the machines are rationed. You get 30 minutes of internet time and you sign up for it and then oof, the next person's on there. So I could go to the library and maybe find this center. <coughs> but maybe they're not open because we're not funding them. So that all of this is part of the same package. Where would black youth encounter black feminism? Perhaps in their families. Some of them might have some um, black feminist mothers who are saying, or fathers, by the way. This everyday black feminism and the whole notion of strong black women, perhaps. Public schools, I'm not optimistic, all right? So I'm kind of giving up on that. Churches, maybe. Um, womanism, liberation theology is certainly there. There are certainly people fighting a good fight within the context of uh, black religious communities. But there, you get the social conservatism. That, that militates against certain issues, like gay, lesbian issues, um, against uh, marriage, uh, not marriage, but heterosexual marriage, therefore, but against gay, lesbian marriage, all of that. You get a social conservatism that, damp that tamps down the progressive impetus, if in fact it's there to begin with. So, you know, there are little girls sitting up in church saying, I'm going to be a good black woman, and I'm going I'm to do this, and so All right. Uh, so what begins to happen in that context is mass media becomes even more significant, all right? So the power of these images and these ideas and the use of social media really becomes important because other venues are blocked. So taking each other seriously. I've got two sites here that I think are very, very interesting and promising sites where young black women or younger black women, to me they're young, remember I had a 50-year-old, 50-year-old, all right, are really beginning to take the ideas of black feminism and hip-hop seriously. And a lot of it does come from the, this sort of work from the 90s, that transitional decade. But now we're in a different place. Hip hop, I think we can talk about as a generational phenomenon that's rooted in local social interactions, like spoken word, but it has global, it's spread via global mass media. So hip hop is almost the language of the young that is expressing a generational consciousness of anger and rebellion and disappointment 
against what was handed. We were promised it was going to be better, and look what we got. So why would we be surprised if you see, speed up, da, 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 da. Why would we be surprised if we see angry young men in our face on video, which is this close to you? Why would we be surprised by that? So I think that US black feminism and hip hop have to do a much better job of taking each other seriously. And I have two examples here. One would be the Black Lives Matter movement. Now that's come up in the last two years. Last night I talked about Trayvon Martin, which in some ways was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back in getting people's attention. But the deaths in Ferguson and in Baltimore were further catalysts where you see a growing sense of social movement organization. All right. Now, the Black Lives Matter movement is uh, Twitter-based, and many people do not know that that was founded by three queer black women. Now, that's very much in the, in the history of Iwell Barnett. It's the kind of work she did, only now they're doing something a little different. Alicia Garza, Patrice Collins, I believe, and Opal Tometi, I think I'm saying this correctly. But these are all young black women who are involved in uh, social justice projects that aren't necessarily called black feminist projects. You know, it doesn't have to be called feminist to be a feminist project, you see, who have come together around Black Lives Matter. And what they're dealing with is that whole movement becoming very male-focused and being hijacked, having black men too much the center of that advocacy so that black women are pushed yet again into these subordinate roles of supporting as opposed to being in the front. And they say, never again is that going to happen. We've seen that story too many times. So it'll be really <coughs> interesting to see what happens with this. And if not this particular movement, what will come next? Because if you have social injustice, conditions of social injustice, you will have responses to it. The second one is one that I totally love. And this is the black feminism and the media, the hip hop feminists of the Crunk Feminist Collective. I mentioned them last night. Crunk is the southern form of hard hitting music. It's taking um, the southern states of the US. It's taking um, the focus off of New York, because this would be the focus of hip hop, you know, the black male, I don't know. These women are from the South, Atlanta. There's a nice little feminist spirit in Atlanta at um, Spelman College. My colleague, Beverly Guy Chappell, has been there longer than I've been there, been doing what I've been doing, teaching all these young black women. They've created a space to go out and be feminists. So the feminist, uh, the Crump Feminist Collective has <coughs> taken it to the next level. You need to, um, I think I have a little uh, webpage down here. You might want to go on their webpage and poke around and see what they're talking about. Because to me, Crump is paralleling hip hop. We're beyond jazz people. We're beyond singing the blues. <laughs> Those are metaphors of my generation. This generation really has is developing its own voice and politics from its own experiences, its own analysis, its own actions. That's what's happened, all right? My job is to try and learn from them and stay ahead of it. Okay, second thing, back up. Organizational venues for black feminist praxis. What I have here is just a list of the heterogeneity of where one would find black women now, African American women. We can no longer assume that there's one downtrodden mass of the help, or that there are people working in the factories, and you have a few women worthies who have broken out. We now have a much more heterogeneous African American population in the US. This is quite different than other places. We have some very highly placed women 
who'd been Secretary of State. So we can see the heterogeneity of perspectives among that group. And the question becomes, how do we actually form alliances and coalitions among this group? This is something that has to be constructed and not just assumed. There's no assumed similarity anymore. So <coughs> black women activists and community leaders, black women in academia, we can join to black women professionals. Attorneys and philanthropists are very, very significant now in terms of people watching the store around the law and also the money, right? And black women in media venues, quite a list there. So there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot to work with. The issue is what will be the vision that'll go along with that. All right, you're looking tired, so I'm gonna finish up quickly. Are you tired? No. Okay, I just want to check, you know, I mean, because you never know. Just to bring this to your attention, because I think this is a really interesting and emerging site of coalitions, and this would be the African American Policy Forum. Uh, these are all new initiatives that are happening in the last couple of years, which is why I'm much more positive than I was before. This particular uh, policy forum comes under the rubric of the Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies. This one is at Columbia Law School, and it was founded by the very same Kimberly Crenshaw, who everyone thinks wrote her article and went off to the fields. I don't know, after she wrote that initial article on intersectionality and identity politics, she has done a very fascinating job of not only organizing this institute, you know, finding people to organize the institute, but the African American Policy Forum to basically attempt to influence U.S. policy around, well, what about the girls, right? So we've got Barack Obama's um, My Brother's Keeper initiative, which is becoming more male-dominated and masculine as we speak. And this particular institute is simply on the case left with all kinds of tools. Very interesting, letter to the president, Twitter feed, why we can't wait. They're now holding town hall hearings on the status of girls of color to raise the profile of the situation of girls of color in the US. They do online education via webinar series, putting people together who are policymakers and researchers, philanthropists and community activists, and they also do publications. One of their publications is a primer on intersectionality, which is one of the clearest statements I've seen of intersectionality for ordinary everyday people, you see. So they don't believe that it's all locked up in the rarefied atmosphere of you know, the academy, that it's, just, it's something else. So I call this to your attention because we often don't pay enough attention to what people are doing because the actions are something that happens out there. They're bridging Columbia Law School, inside, outside. And my final, ah, here it is, developing stronger coalitions with similar global social justice product, projects. I'm happy to say that what is cheering me up tremendously is that there's all kinds of work transnationally. But I would caution us not to go too quickly to a global social movement that's a feminist movement. Because that has the danger of, again, erasing the particularities without even seeing that that's happening. There's something called the transnational black feminism. And these would be many local projects that go across national borders, but where black feminism is inflected with the particular history of that place. So I want to finish with a place that made me really happy. Can I finish with a happy place? All right. <laughs> Latina Dades. This is the Afro-Latin and Afro-Caribbean Women's Festival that's held in Brazil every two years. 
they held their festival in 2014. They've been holding it for a fair amount of time now, since three or four. They have a theme, each time they hold it. It is transnational. They bring people in. It is both an academic conference and a festival at the same time. And that kind of boggles the mind, doesn't it? They have uh, seminars, they have keynote speakers, they, but they also, after the academic part, they have a party all weekend, right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's done in Brasilia, the capital, and it's held at, one, at a major museum, which is, is taken over by all these black women, most of whom are Brazilian, but many of them are from other places in the world. And I have the honor to um, be invited to speak as one of their keynote speakers in 2014. So I went with my two little words of Portuguese, which are totally pitiful, but I went anyhow. And here are some of the graphics and the photos that come from that. This is one of the few places where I've seen black women raising their hands in black, with a black power salute. This is one of the few places where I've seen free black women. I saw more hair, different kinds of hair, on more different kinds of bodies. Along with there were white women, it's not like the white women couldn't come and the white men couldn't come. They were raising their hands to them, taking their hair, whatever, you know. But it was, you know, because you can join in, come join, all right. But what you get is something really very interesting. But I want to point out, here's Angela Davis down in the corner on the right. But when I, I want to point out the meal in the center. Because the people who organized this conference, the very, in the beginning, this is Ana Flavia on the right, this is Chia on the left, they were in their early 30s. These were young women who put on a conference, where an international conference, where they had to work with the government, with universities, with community groups, community organizers, people with drumming, people with dance. I was so impressed by them. It really gave me hope. Because it's so hard to see this, these types of projects, many of which may be local or hidden to us, but they're in other places. But I do believe they are happening. And maybe you can see me back in the back. I'm there in the back. I'm wearing a little yellow scarf. I'm that little tiny head way in the back. All right. I like the picture of me up in there. And I was next to the woman with the enormous fro who writes about erotic, erotic poetry. That's what she writes. Ooh, steamy stuff. You know, it was really, really a very inclusive venue. All right. It was inclusive in ways that we often don't see, but it was also centered on the experiences of black women. So for me, I'm very, very happy I took that plane ride. It was long, it was worth it. And I want to finish there, and thank you so much for bearing with me on my talk. It's always longer than <laughs>